Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, we are delighted to have Tom Murtaugh on the show. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. I say we because we have a brand new co-host, a new colleague of mine here at SalesLoft, Jenna Sachs. She is the Director of Revenue Strategy. Welcome, Jenna. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And welcome, Tom. I'm really excited to be here. Getting back to Tom, he is the Vice President of Go-to-Market Operations at Big ID. They are a data governance, security, and privacy platform. They're also a Forbes 2021 Cloud 100 company. We're not going to talk about security and privacy. We're obviously talking sales. I'm excited to talk about a few things with Tom. One is he's been doing a lot of work on territory modeling, which is near and dear to both Jenna's and my heart. And the other thing is to talk about the evolution of the role of revenue operations. So you probably heard that his title is go to market operations. It's uh, another way of describing RevOps. So we'll talk about that as well. Before we do that, Tom, we'd love to get to know our guests a bit. And I'd love to ask you, what is an interesting or an unusual hobby that you have? So I been a musician since I was 15 years old and played in bands right out of school. I actually took two years off from right out of college and sold TVs and tried to play music and try to make it big. Obviously, that didn't happen. That's ultimately how I got into sales and outside sales. But my friends, I'm still really close with all of the people that I play music with. We realized we, we couldn't be in a band. So instead, we started a company where we build guitar pedals for guitarists. We started this back in 2013 with $6,000 of just seed funding from us. And we have a six-figure annual revenue company at this point. We're, we're trying to make it a little bit bigger, but at, but it's really a passion project for the three of us. And we've sold to like uh, Peter Frampton, uh, Little Steven, Mogwai for any indie rockheads out there. Um, so it's it's been really fun and it's a great way for us to stay connected, especially being in the New York area. My friends are back in Pennsylvania. It's kept us really close over the past eight years. I'm, I'm curious who manufactures for you. Are you guys have a soldering iron in the basement kind of deal or you've outsourced this? I can't believe you said that because that's literally what it is. My buddy Ryan, uh, my best friend, he's a maker. He calls himself a maker. He's a carpenter, an electrician by trade, and he builds these. It started in his basement. He bought a house that has a really nice big barn in it, and now we have a full, basically a full workshop. And Ryan's uh, parents have, for years, had a bunch of foster boys, like the best people in the planet. And we usually employ those foster boys. And it's been pretty cool because there's been a lot of them that have done really well and a couple of them that are going to college one of them that just graduated college but they all started at our company at barn three helping us produce these pedals so it's all manufactured and made in pennsylvania oh that's amazing well let's transition over first to um before we get to territory let's talk a little bit about the evolution of what was sales strategy actually it was finance way way back when right it was just sales finance and then became sales operations revenue operations and as revenue operations has has come to include marketing as well what all falls into your purview as head of go-to-market operations i was on field operations at my last job at calibra and field operations basically was sales customer success professional services and support overseeing you know all, all operations reporting systems etc for those teams the difference here is uh, marketing ops you know similar to revenue operations is also under the purview of me and then the bigger thing is the change which is interesting and it actually is working out really well here is i report to the coo and not the cro it 
takes me into even some broader operational conversations a little bit. You know, I won't ever say I'm in product operations, but helping get in the interlock between sales and end product. And then a lot of the planning pieces, you know, that our COO, you know, undertakes, you know, from a go-to-market perspective falls into us. So I'd really say having that marketing remit and then kind of the planning and a little bit of the broader operational kind of connective tissue to, to some of the other functions. Can, can you drill down a little bit into what the planning piece entails? Because I think a lot of times that is a piece that is often still reserved for finance, right? Like sales and operations planning as a domain. But what does that entail project-wise? I've actually been building out all of our capacity and hiring ramp modeling. We just hired our first FP&A person who's awesome and is truly a great partner in crime. But my perspective from planning under our remit, it's really about the top line. So we're doing all of the top line kind of estimations about where we think, where we're going to be from a sales perspective, future quarters, um, how many headcount we need, you know, what's the timing of getting those people on, where we're going to place those individuals in order to get the best yield. It's really the top line. And then our FP&A person takes care of the bottom line. So that's kind of how we're, we're splitting up uh, the planning process. You know, what, what else do you incorporate in planning? What, you know, I think of, you know, maybe program development or roles and responsibilities. Are those things that you're also thinking about as you're going through this process this year? You know, in previous years, a lot of the, the planning exercises that we'd go through was kind of like thinking about new roles, right? And new coverage models. Um, you know, we changed um, at a previous company you know, we changed the coverage model to include more junior reps and try to go a little bit more down market. So something that we could be doing here at some point, I think another big part of the planning process, to your point, Jenna, is the rules of engagement between sales and like customer success. I feel like we're pretty defined here, but in previous places, that was something big that we took on because we, a story from a, a previous life is we hired customer success people um, that were basically shadow salespeople. And we gave them a quota. We expected them to sell. And then we even gave them an independent quota for a specific product. And ultimately, it didn't necessarily work that well. We did great and everything worked out great. But when we started looking at the cost envelope of having kind of two sets of sellers, we said, this isn't, this isn't working and this isn't going to scale in the way that we need to based on kind of the bottom line trajectory and the, the margins that are needed. And we bifurcated the customer success organization into a truly customer success organization and the more senior account management organization that took on customers. I think we're in a more traditional SaaS structure with how customer success and sales are, are set up. So I feel like we don't need to get into that right yet or make many tweaks yet. Do your CSMs there have any commercial responsibility or is it all about driving usage and engagement? Yeah, we're actually shifting them to just be all about usage and usage and engagement. You know, and even the renewal we made it we made a, a pretty hard demarcation, which I actually was kind of pivoting against because of uh, my history with kind of how our legacy CS was at a at a previous organization. The renewal is now owned fully by the salesperson too. So in that case, is it the original seller that is the one who's engaged, or is it do you have like a growth team versus a acquisition? Like how how is that structured for you currently? You know, there's no hunter or farmer. It's kind of, I think, you know, traditional SaaS where you close a customer, they're your customer. You know, you keep it. The only way that an original seller wouldn't be on the deal is if that person has left or we change territories out. But most of the original sellers of the deal are still renewing those customers. Going back to the reporting structure and the responsibilities, right? The, the there's still It's still the case, right, that a lot of RevOps leaders and CROs, right, have those initial pieces you talked about, sales, CS, professional services, and support. And then there's a peer CMO not reporting to the CRO who has marketing and, and retains marketing operations. I'm curious for you, 
if you're giving advice to somebody who was a RevOps person looking to pick up additional responsibilities in marketing operations, where was the learning curve for you on marketing ops? What, what are the key things people need to know? You know, I think some of the digital pieces, I mean, that's actually something that I still feel like is a growing edge for me, a place where I need to, to dig in. Some of the digital aspects of marketing is we have a, an incredible digital marketing team here. So I feel like they're doing things that we should probably ultimately take on as an ops, you know, more from like a reporting perspective. But I, I almost feel bad about it. But it's like, there's no way there's no way for us to do that at, at this point. I think the most important thing to think about from a marketing ops perspective, or what, what I dug into first was the funnel, and really understanding and reverse engineering the funnel, all the funnel metrics. Again, this is on the enterprise side of things, but really understanding that and building out the right funnel model, and really monitoring the heck out of that and then understanding the yield from all of the different you know, sources. And that's something that the exercise that we're going through right now, me and my marketing ops leader, you know, are really trying to dig into that and understand what's driving the best leads and how much are we paying for those? And, and you know, should we double down on those sources? And then also trying to figure out what's the right attribution model. So digging into attribution, single touch, multi-touch, first touch, last touch, you know, you know that's one thing where I kind of knew that on the fringes, but until I started this job, I'm like, oh, wow, this really matters because our CMO, who is amazing, says this all the time. It's like, you can't purely look at yield because you have to understand a lot of these things that we're doing is air cover, right? And it drives other things and trying to figure out how those other things that maybe aren't directly related from a first touch or last touch to a lead are influencing those leads, I think is super important. And that's where kind of the multi-touch and getting into some of the tooling around that attribution is really interesting. Just through that, what do you find, you know, you mentioned funnels, you mentioned attribution models. What is the most telling for you out of all of those data points currently as you dig into that more? You know, we have sources of leads. We have salespeople, partners, marketing, and uh, CSM and other. Let me ask you guys a question. In your experience, what is the best lead source out of those, those that I, I said, partners, sales, marketing, CS, or like other, which would be like advisors or even like people internally referring excluding inbound i would say the aes themselves i might say partners but i also have a partner background so maybe that's why so it's actually cs for us which is really interesting i know i thought the same thing but the cs team it's not a very large amount but the cs team actually has been doing a really great job at identifying those leads and again it gets back to the rules of engagement what we we're talking about before like having the cs team tee up those leads but then not be the person the bad person that's there that needs to go close it and pushes it over to the salespeople. It actually creates a really cool dynamic. We had a bunch of CS leaders on the show recently, and you know they raved about CSQLs, customer qualified leads. So I, I guess I love that. I'm stealing that CSQLs. That's great. You, you mentioned attribution, and funny enough, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who is you know in the same position. They're uh, about to take over marketing operations in addition to the the RevOps stuff that they do currently. And my, I warned them, I said, I, I was a CMO about 10 years ago, and I try, I ran at attribution, and I feel like attribution remains one of the great unsolved problems. And I warned her to like, go, go with where people have settled themselves, which is on marketing influenced pipeline, or marketing influenced revenue. I think that is a much is a much better thing. And then the other the other piece of guidance I had was don't think of it as like a static amount, right? As, uh, think of it as the trend. And that what you want is you want the marketing influence pipeline to increase at the same or better rate as your growth in revenue. That's the key. I think that's 
huge. And I think that's a big journey in and of itself. Like, you know, we're at a point where, you know, we look at sourced, right? And source is kind of the golden thing. And I think most most startups, that's the big thing because getting to that influenced metric is really hard and it requires a lot of alignment across the teams. I remember actually uh, in a previous life, my counterpart who ran marketing operations, she was awesome. And she came from a pretty big company and she put up this really big definition of marketing influence and what it means. And everyone was like, yeah, this looks great. And she was like, really? She's like, that's it? We're like, yeah, we're good with this. It's all good. Because it was, you know, it was new. It seemed logical. She brought like experience from from where she was before. You know, it was like, hey, you know, things are going to be influenced. They're only going to have a 90 day window. If it goes, you know, anything beyond that, then the attribution resets, et cetera. You know, like, you know, good details, but we all thought it was logical. But then I asked her afterward, I'm like, why did you seem so shocked? And she's like, this has been such a larger conversation at other companies and such a contentious conversation at other companies. And I realized, I'm like, it was probably more about our growth stage and where we were at a growth stage where we weren't getting into kind of that fray of like, is this my pipeline? Did I help do this or did you help do this or not? But to your point, Jeremy, that attribution and that influence kind of model, however your your framework, whatever you're you're having in place, that is a touchy thing to get alignment on. Did you ever see conflict? We talked about ROE between maybe sales and CS, but I, in my past lives, I've seen ROE conflict between maybe partner channels and marketing and you know, everyone trying to really get that credit for pipeline generation. Do you ever see that? And, and if so, how do you handle that? We have a really great culture here and really great leadership team. So I wouldn't say it's conflict, but it's like active discussions and conversations and a lot more conversation. And honestly, that's risen up a bunch now that, that we started reporting on it. Because when I came on board, you know, one of the first things, you know, we did, we, I, I'm like, we need to stand up a, some type of weekly dashboard and call it our weekly flash report. And part of that is all of the opportunities that have come in the past week and what the attribution sources are. And every time we send that out, there's probably two, three, you know, could be half a dozen emails coming like, oh, that's not the source of this deal. This deal was actually sourced by the partner team or, oh, no, this deal was sourced by the marketing team. We dug up the original lead. We're doing single first touch attribution. So it goes to marketing. So I won't say contentious, but there's a lot of conversation now that we've made that visible. Well, since we're on contentious issues, let's get to the one we we promised to talk about, which is territory strategy. Sounds like you've been doing a lot of work lately on territory. What sort of guiding principles and goals do you have in place for what you're doing? It is such a contentious topic, right? And even the approach to territory. So I worked at the Alexander Group for a long time, and that that was amazing training grounds and just you know digging into. And for anybody who doesn't know, Alexander Group's a boutique management consulting company. They do a lot of comp work. I think. Uh, David Jacelli, uh, the SVP of uh, Alexander Group, is literally the godfather of sales compensation. He wrote the book called Compensating the Sales Force. He will remind you of that when you talk to him, but he's an awesome guy. And, and all of the people there were just so smart. And I remember having a discussion with one of the other SVP about territories. I was like, you know, it's about creating equity, you know, amongst the sales team. And he was like, it's not about creating equity. He's like, it's about getting the most out of every freaking account that you have. And I mean, he, he shot me down pretty pretty hardcore. And and I can't say he's wrong, right? Because we want to get yield and we want to make sure that we're getting, you know, the best people covering the best accounts. But I really do look at it as, I guess, and maybe this is more of a selfish perspective, but when I deliver somebody's comp plan and their quota, I want to be able to back up. You have this quota because you have this account, these accounts, you have this territory. This is your territory score. This is the average score. You could see you're above average and that's why your quota might be, you know, a little bit more providing that visibility to people and being really transparent about how we came to the scoring. And we've done this, I've done this before in the past, 
it feels very uncomfortable at first, but then when you start having the conversations and you know, you're not talking OTE numbers or anything kind of out of the ordinary with, with the sellers, but once you start having the conversation and you start showing them the data, that's pretty irrefutable. You know, if you get the model right, it usually shuts down any kind of quota negotiation <laughs> that you'd get into. Uh, you're, you're, you're speaking my language because uh, I think Jenna's smiling too, because I think both of us have built territory scoring models in the past. Uh, did you build your own or, or are you building your own? Or there also are some kind of public ones out there for account scoring and territory building. I think it might be the old Alexander Group consultant in me where I've you know, built a lot of these in the past, but I always kind of build my own and I kind of have, you know, it's like, it's like a cook, right? Like every cook has a recipe for chili and it's like, I kind of have my territory kind of scoring model recipe. I'm sure you guys have it too. You know, it's like how, you know, how much tomatoes and how many beans, how much beans you put in there. It's up to you. One thing, and this isn't a gratuitous plug for HG Insights, but um, we have HG Insights data. And that's actually been a game changer. And, you know, we got that at a previous company. I've actually had it at two, three companies now. And I was so excited when I came here and they had HG Insights because I think it's a golden data set, at least directionally accurate spend data for people. And when you can uncover where your spend bucket is, you have a real high correlation between that spend and what, you know, the amount of revenue ARR that you're getting out of an account. We did that analysis at previous companies. And, you know, you can look at annual revenue, you can look at employee numbers, you can look at industry, you can look at a variety of different things, location, but the highest correlation has always been with some of the HG Insight spend data. So we have that, that's the base, that's the meat of my chili uh, is the HG Insights data. And then, you know, trying to find other interesting things that are more, maybe more particular to your business, like industry for us, because, you know, lots of highly regulated industries need our, need our platform. That's a big one that that has big influence. And then also because we are getting more yield from current customers with what we were talking about with the CS team being able to kind of identify those leads, we put a little little extra weighting on customers to increase the score for for a current customer. Or how, how frequently do you change territory? For instance, for us in the SMB or commercial sector, we do it twice a year. In enterprise, we do it once a year. And it's not to take, right? If people in the enterprise, for example, have an existing account, right? We're not taking that account away, as you as you described earlier. But if they've got prospect accounts that they have not converted during the year, you know, some of those are going to be fair game to swap. What we're trying to do is we want to do, at least now, just get to a static, build the territories out for a full year. You know, we'll make exceptions, obviously, if there if there's needed exceptions but really build the territory out for the full year and build all the territories out. If something comes in where there's an open territory or a not yet hired territory, we'll give that over to a, to a sales rep if something comes in there. If they're not going to be filled for a while, but we're trying to do it yearly. And again, I think it's a, that's a function of enterprise just because the sales cycle is so long. We want to give people at least an opportunity to go and, and sell that person for a year. What I've done in previous lives is, you know, we called similar, I think what you're talking about, we called it dyna- dynamic territory allocation. So every six months, even that for an enterprise seller, you know, if you don't have engagement or you don't have contact at a company for, you know, for that six month period, the account goes, it'll either go back in the pool or go to somebody else or go to a new rep. It takes a little bit of maturity and, you know, a certain growth stage to get there because it, I mean, we're hitting some contentious topics because that was a freaking contentious topic with people. P- people game that one, right? They'll drop one email each month just to make sure they hold on to the account. So you got to set some thresholds and not tell them what the threshold is for the swap. Yeah, that's what we did. It, it had to be, it had to be, you know, I think we, we said like three weeks from the review date that something had to happen. It had to be more than three touches. It would, you know, it's, it's good to have that in place, but yeah, that's one you don't, you're not transparent about. Well, just a, a final question as we wrap up, 
uh, as you reflect on you know the, the different roles you've had, what's the project, the RevOps go-to-market strategy project that you've done that you're most proud of? Man, that's a that is a good question. It's a tough question, but you know, but the one that like kind of pops into my mind right away. I was at a company at a, another startup, and um, this wasn't pandemic, but we had to get rid of ten percent of the sales force, and we had to revamp everything. We we were merging BUs together into a regionalized structure, and we had to change comp plans. We had to change everything, and we had to do it in like. It was, you know, getting ready for, you know, some type of liquidity event here. And we had to get it done in six weeks or something like that. And we basically created a team, three or four people from my team, a couple people from another team, you know, two people from finance. And we sat in this war room, you know, for endless nights. I mean, I can't even remember and just worked on this project and got, we would get alignment from the executives. They'd pull it back and then we'd get alignment and then they'd pull it back. But, you know, I think the reason why I'm, proud of it. It's not because we had to let go of 10% of people. It is actually probably one of the more tougher things. I really like working in growth companies because you usually don't ever have to go through those those situations. But we did it in a way where it ended up really positive. We didn't only work on, you know, all of the kind of, you know, wonky ops stuff, but we really worked on the comms and the way that we're going to present it to the team. And we presented it and we presented it again, and we did it with kindness and caring, knowing that you know they're looking around at teammates that aren't there anymore, and it went as best as it could, and went better than than expectations for myself. But but it was a really cool time where I think that's where I knew that I wanted to get into a like a revenue or go to market operations because it was such a cross functional engagement, and so many people came together. And there's always infighting between those functions, but if you can come together in a time of kind of crisis where you have to get rid of ten percent of the people. And come out of a project and kind of do it with people feeling okay. It was pretty cool. That's the story for RevOps, you know, or go to market ops or whatever in general is, you know, if you can do that well, then you can do the top line stuff. That's really fun, really well. That's what got me where I'm at today. Whenever I talk about strategy, I always am very, very careful about the order I say that strategy is people, process, and technology, and and the order matters there. The people come first. Well, Tom, thank you for sharing all your wisdom today on revenue operations and go-to-market strategy. And Jenna, thanks for co-hosting with me. Thanks for having me again. Thanks so much for having me. It was really, really great talking talking with you too. And um, hope to do it again. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.